E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. We are here today with Matt Stinton, the beverage director of Hearth Restaurant and Terroir Wine Bar. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. You're amazing, and it's so good to have you here. <laughs> well, you're amazing. So you're amazing. No, no, stop you're, it. no, All no. Right. It's you. Fine. <laughs> um, so, Matt, you taste thousands of wines a year. Yeah, you're a great so, taster. You're exposed to so much. Yeah, yeah, you travel all around. That's true. Yeah, and I just think that you have an incredible palate, and you're great at blind tasting. Thank you. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, I don't know how great I am at blind tasting, but I do do blind tasting a lot. Yeah, you're great, and you, you can you can nail stuff pretty spot on. But um, I wanted to challenge you a little bit, and I wanted to see how good you are at a different kind of blinding. Okay. Are you up for this? I am. Okay, I knew you would be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good, good. So, I recorded some sounds that are common sounds in the wine business, and I wanted to play them for you and see if you can blind here. These everyday wine sounds. Are you ready? I think so, yeah. Okay, and all you people out there, when you're listening, see if you can guess it before Matt. <laughs> okay, sound number one. Do you need it one more time? No, no, I think I got it. Okay, what was it? That is uh, the opening of a PBR can and then being poured into a plastic cup. <laughs> That's what I think that is. You know what? You're very, very close. It was tech- It was actually a soda can, but um, but it was Who a pull tab can. Who drinks soda? Wait a minute. Come on. That's not fair. <laughs> Nobody drinks soda. <laughs> okay. Let's all use our imaginations and let's say it was a PBR can. Okay, good. Is that better? It makes me feel better. I-, I think so. And was it being poured into a plastic cup? Oh, yeah. You okay. know it. Good. You know it. Perfect. <laughs> that was very good. I love that accuracy. I knew you would be good at this. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, I have opened... You know, I've tasted thousands of wines, but I've probably opened hundreds of thousands of PBRs this year. So I know the sound well. I dream about it. All right. Sounds yeah. good. It's like your uh, your daily uh, soundtrack. <laughs> okay. All right. Here comes another one. Can you guess this everyday wine sound? That is the opening of a PBR can <laughs> and being poured into This is so easy. <laughs> okay. Ready? Yeah. Can you guess this everyday sommelier sound? 
boy. Um, th- <laughs> that sounds like uh, something being crushed in a by mortar and pestle. Let's try one more. Let's try it one more time. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. You know this one. You know this one. I want you to listen to it all the way through. Is that the whole thing? Is that is that the removal of a foil from the top of a of a wine bottle? Of a top of a I, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I don't know. It, okay, listen closely one more time. Okay. So that is uh, a corkscrew going into uh, the top of a um, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, and then the cork is actually being extracted from the bottle. And then I think at the end of it, you can hear someone smelling the cork, right? Um, what was the vintage of the of the Napa Cabernet? I think it was probably the tens. I think because it was you, you could tell good. it was still a, a relatively new cork. It's, recent corked bottle man he's good he's good i can't even believe this okay it's funny how you guessed the pbr one right away but like opening a, <laughs> a cork out of a bottle you were like i don't know well it was the the like there was like this clinking noise at the beginning that would kind of threw me off and then it, it the cork really sounded like yeah harder it was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of weird all right let's try another one okay can you guess this every day Sommelier sound. Now, that is the opening of a beer bottle. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a Dogfish Head 60-minute IPA. Oh, you're so close. It, it's a Lagunitas IPA. But you guessed the IPA, right? Okay, good. It's an IPA. You could just <laughs> tell, by the way, <clears throat> whoever opened it threw the cap on the ground that they were dying to get into it. And it just was like the cap was was hopping off. Yeah, exactly. Off it was bottle. hopped off. There was so much <laughs> hops in that that it just popped off itself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you had some easy ones. Here's a, one that's a little bit tougher. Can you guess this every day? Suddenly, sound. Now listen very carefully. Because it's a, it's obviously a liquid being poured, right? But... What type of liquid yeah. and from what? Yeah, because it really sounds like somebody peeing. <laughs> uh, well, okay, in, into a decanter. <laughs> Matt, first of all, you're on the right track. Okay, because what temperature is urine? It's hot. <laughs> it's very you're right. warm. It's yeah. a hot liquid. It so is you a hot guess, liquid. You get, you're on the right track. All right, so we have a hot liquid here. Okay, can I hear this? <laughs> can I hear this again? Sure, sure. One more time. Okay, here we go. It's that stop midstream that really throws me off. Because um, that could be really hot pee where you're like, ah, I, gotta, I have to stop that in the middle. Uh, so here's, here's the trick is that 
I normally drink this out of plastic <laughs> cork containers. Uh, but I have a feeling because of of who we are that this is probably coffee. You're very correct. You're being very correct. poured into a coffee cup. Yep. You got it. That's I can't even Porcelain coffee cup. You are so good. You are so good. It's actually a milk glass coffee cup, but I could see where you would guess porcelain. Yeah. Because I'm like, I just have all milk glass mugs at home, so it's a little bit different sound. But yeah. You, I, I can't even believe it. You're so good. You guessed that hot liquid right away. <laughs> okay. Here comes another one. Um, this is something that you do a thousand times a year, probably more. It's something that you do at least 20 times a night. Can you guess this everyday sommelier sound? Is that taking the cork off of the corkscrew? Yeah. Okay. Man, you are good. <laughs> Boom. These are too easy for you. These are way too easy for Although you. Although I, I do have to say, my, my imagination wandered and it sounded... Uh, it sounded like like some sort of serial killer activity. But I don't know why. I don't. It's like some doing something to a. I, I don't know why. I think it's the the day that I'm having. Well, corkscrews are violent. <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay, here's an. This is something that you do uh, that you used to not do a lot, but now you're doing it more and more, multiple times a night usually. Screw cap. Boom, easy. Okay. You got that one. Yeah, but you led into that. Like, you used to not do it that often, and now you do it more. Mm, I, gave I, I was going to say screw cap before you even started playing it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that was a giveaway. Giveaway. Yeah. Here's another one. I appreciate the hints, though. You're, you're very welcome. Now, this one, uh, well, you just tell me everything that you possibly can. Here we go. Is that, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the stopping at the beginning that leads me to bodily functions. <laughs> is it, uh, I, I want to say it's like sparkling wine being poured into a flute. Bam! Amazing! Yes! <laughs> I was, see, I wanted to know if you could get the flute part. I knew you were going to get the sparkling part. Well, you can, you know, in, in my professional opinion, you can tell by the amount of bubbles at the end of it. And by the That focus. it's being forced Mm-hmm. Upward and the focus concentration of sound. Yeah, that's happening right and there. And the stopping at the beginning because it's not always easy to get it in. You don't want to splash it up, and it's a smaller <laughs> hole. But yeah, no, you're right. Isn't it weird how a flute is like an amplifier uh-huh. of sound? And yeah. you picked up on that. I'm very, uh, very happy about that. Okay, now here's the next one. This you're going to hear three sounds. It's three of the same things, but recorded from different vantage points. Here we go. Can you guess what this is? Um, that it sounds like, uh, it sounds like somebody hitting a decanter to make sure that it's really glass. <laughs> okay. That's a good guess because 
These are two gl- pieces of glassware cheersing. Oh, okay. But what piece of glassware is as big as a decanter? I would say like a um a Bordeaux shaped glass or like a We're I guess there. a Cabernet glass. Give me producers. Give me producers. Uh Riedel. Bam, you're right about that. Okay. So I would you know, we use the the um the Shiraz Oh, I love that. Uh, Syrah style for our larger. But then you've got, like, I guess the Sommelier series has that massive Cabernet one. And, I, I mean, can I? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. It's, you know, we use, you know, like I said, I, I would probably have to venture to say that it's the, like, a burgundy bowl because Damn. of the, the cadence. <laughs> Gosh, you're unbelievable. Unbelievable. I don't, these are just coming to me. I didn't even know I had this knowledge. Well, I'm telling you, like, I can't even believe that you're spot on, spot on hitting the producer based on a cheers. This is incredible. <laughs> Matt Stinton can do great blind hearing. All right, I've got one more for you. We're going to end on this note. Okay. What is this sound? <laughs> Holy shit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can I, can I hear that again? <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, it sounds like, <laughs> it kind of sounds like a door opening in the, uh, in the Death Star or, or something <laughs> being fired from the Death Star. I, I, I don't know what that is. That was Thomas over at the Nomad running his hands through his hair. <laughs> oh, you know, now that you mention it, I, it, that does sound like that. I didn't know we were going to get specific like I that. I thought, okay, you guys can't see this, but Matt just ran his fingers through his hair when he was trying to guess what that was. And I thought he was onto something. <laughs> but no, he went Death Star. I really wish I would have gotten that. I really, I really do. So there's many more things besides uh, tasting. We also use uh, other senses when we're working. And wow, Matt Stitton just nailed it. So great blind hearing, Matt. I can't even believe it. Go and visit him at, uh, at Hearth Restaurant or Terroir Wine Bar. Thank you very much. Sustainability has never been more important. And DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com. 
dot com forward slash I D T T. That's D I A M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash I D T T for more information. Giuseppe Vara on the show today of the Vara Winery in Piemonte. Hello, sir. How are you? Bene. Grazie. Buongiorno, everyone. And thank you for having me here. My pleasure to have you here. So tell me a little bit about the history of the winery. It was started by your father. Yep. Uh, well, my father's name is Aldo, and he's the guy who started the winery. It is um, a beautiful, slightly different story than usual for Barolo. He was a city-born guy, and he had long hair. A Beatles cutting back in the late 60s. He was 15 in 1968, went for his first demonstration against the war and had the misfortune to run into his father, he used to work for secret services. So you can imagine uh, the family was not so happy to have a rebel kid and he was driven back immediately to Barolo. That's where we were from. That's where the family legacy was and got to spend the summer in the vineyards. And by the by the end of August, he, he was in love with it and and that's how he started. He basically communicated to the family he was going to become a contadino, so a farmer. It was not even the desire for being a winter or, or specifically or to be a winemaker. And it was a big, big shock for the family and then a big scandal in the region. Uh, most of the people were leaving or trying to get a job in factories, uh, offices. Uh, my grandparents acted as a bridge, point of connection for the kids who wanted to find a job in Torino and their own son was going back so this is uh this is where virus started or restarted and um uh, so 72 was the first harvest um by then my my father had the permission to get rid of sharecroppers and start farming his own uh, land and this is where we started but, uh, because at the time you had land that you inherited with from the family he, he did because the family had of Viola, the Barolo vineyard for Correct. quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, that that vineyard is um, is the most important family legacy. Um, we're not sure. We I don't have uh, haven't found documents yet. But but what I was told by my grandparents is that that vineyard was bought by the Vieras uh, straight from the Marquis of Barolo, who obviously, as you know, were controlling and owning all the land. Uh, this was up to Juliette Colbert and uh, Carlo Tancredi Faletti, so the last Marquis generation and uh, when they started to sell land that's how Brico de Viola got into the family and uh, it was a farm so there was Brico de Viola some more vineyards especially in Fossati area and then we had uh, obviously fields uh, to to feed the cattle and this was uh, the old Vaira days. And what's it like now what, what are the different grape varieties that you produce at the winery today? It's primarily is indigenous grapes. Um, I think a, a bit of a feature for for our wineries that we don't want to make a monocultura. So monocultura is when you farm, well, usually you would use monocultura to define um, farm, uh, looking after just one one crop, uh, but we use it to mean a winery farming only Nebbiolo. And we feel this is this is sad, it's, uh, it's not what we want to do. So there is Nebbiolo, but obviously, but there's uh, Barbera and Dolcetto, and the three Grapes represent about one-third each of the production. And then we have Freza, which is our beloved uh, last of the Mohicans. Um, 
We have Albarossa, which is another native grape of Piemonte, a uh, very interesting story, and Moscato. And then we have uh, two more grapes, which are not native, and that's Riesling and Pinot Noir. Uh, very different stories. Riesling was, um, it is the most beloved grape for, white grape for the whole family. It was the first Riesling painted in the region in 86, and a bit of a pirate story. While Pinot Noir is a more recent story, it was uh, planted in 99, and that's also a bit of a pride and rebellion story, but that's, that's more recent. So let's take those one by one. You, tell me a little bit about the Fraser and, and how that uh, came about in terms of a bottling and what changes might have happened over the years. Yeah, well, Fraser was uh, one of the first vineyards my father planted. Uh, we're talking of mid-70s. Um, being born in Torino, Fraser was his everyday wine. Um, you have to imagine that one of the most consistent productions of Fraser is in Chieri, which is the uh, next door town to Torino. And that's usually a vivace wine, so it's a bit fizzy. Uh, back in the days, this was obviously due to the fact that wines didn't fully ferment. Um, and it was a fun wine that just paired very well cuisine. Um, so he planted Fraser for this um, history in his life. And uh, back until 90, uh, sorry, 1988 vintage, it was a Fraser vivace, a fizzy, a fizzy wine. Then 89 was the first time we, we fermented it dry, and um, it was um, it, it was uh, strange because this wine didn't really sell as fast as we as it did before. Uh, people were, were were looking for a different style of wine, and we just saw that the more we were aging in the cellar, the better it was becoming. So already the following vintage, my father was fermenting part of the Fraser dry again. And that's how we started. Uh, today it is called uh, Lange Fraser Kie. Um, and is, uh, it is a dry Fraser. It is uh, harvested very late. Um, history has kind of proven uh, the nobility of the grape. In 2004, Fraser was, uh, was found to be the closest related grape to Nebbiolo. And the two share more than 50% of the DNA. Now, you know this, but... Uh, one branch, one part of the family of the genealogy of Nebbiolo is, is lost. And no matter if they, the university studied about a thousand different grapes, they couldn't find where part of the genes come from. But then the other half uh, is a quite defined branch, and that's where Fraser sits. So we can imagine Fraser, it is an old grape. And this explains why when you look at the vines, at the, especially the canopy of Fraser, it just reminds you of Nebbiolo, even if obviously they have a few a few small differences. And this explains also the richness of tannins and acidity that we find in Fraser. All together, I would just say Fraser is a bit wilder than Nebbiolo. And certainly the fact that they always had um, a, a smaller commercial interest didn't help in defining the grape. I mean, there we have still a very nice uh, biodiversity on Fraser, but this is also driven by the fact there was no clonal selection or no much selection as much as on Nebbiolo. What's Fraser like to grow uh, in terms of in the vineyard? What is it like as a grape variety to handle? Um, it is noble. It is tall. Uh, the canopy of Fraser is about as tall as the one on Nebbiolo. So in meters, that would be about 220 two meters and 20 centimeters. This is to us uh, the tallest canopies we have. Um, and it is noble in the allure of the of the shoots. It's pretty thin shoots, uh, quite an important internode. Um, 
small, medium-sized leaves and uh, beautiful density of leaves. It's not as bushy as Barbera, but uh, the canopy is really nicely covered by, by the leaves. They're all very well spread out and distributed. And when it comes to the bunch, um, the shape of the bunch is pretty similar to Alampia, um, sub-varietal of Nebbiolo, uh, but what differentiated is the length of the stem. A fresa has a, the longest stem of all the grapes we farm. It looks as if it's offering the fruit to you. Now, this, uh, this is the grape. Um, the challenges of Fraser is that it is very delicate in flowering season. So a small rain, a cool night would be sufficient to, to avoid that some of the flowers uh, get fer fertilized and transforming into berries uh, and into bunch. And uh, this is one challenge. And the second one is that uh, it has a very high content of malic acidity, which means that if you pick the fruit when it's not ripe enough, then uh, you turn you you have very nervous juices. Uh, nervous meaning high acidity, and that's malic acidity, which is somehow um, somehow a, a wilder, more metal tasting acidity than tartaric, uh, in a way. And how many people still make Fraser today as a standalone grape and a wine? Too few. I don't have an exact number. Um, luckily, there's still a few tens of wineries producing at a Fraser, pure Fraser's. Um, but it saddened me to see that uh, many people lost confidence in the grape over the last 20, 30 years, uh, because this is really a treasure of the region. Certainly, it is, it is, a, it is a wine that... Um, is demanding, is engaging. So you want to drink it in fall and winter time. You want to pair it well. Uh, you must pair it to really enjoy Fraser. Um, so my my hope is that there will be more and more people that will 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 find a passion to plant Fraser again. Uh, Funny enough, uh, Randall Graham of Bonnie Dune. Um, uh, I don't know if we can really record this, but um, back in the days, we shipped some shoots of our Fraser to him, hidden in jeans trousers. So these must be the only jeans trousers that shipped from Italy into the United States. But um, for a while, he made a Fraser out of the cuttings we shipped him. And uh, unfortunately, he also gave up. So we, we, we really hope we'll find some good supporters to this grape. And you call it Kaye today. Uh, why is that? Yeah. yeah, because in Italian, it sounds like um, who is? What is that? Um, when your body knows the person that is walking on the other side of the road, and you are asking, "Kie?" And uh, this question ex expresses surprise for something you you don't know. We just wanted to communicate the phrase is this unknown secret that um, you you will wonder why what is phrase if you have ever tasted it. But then, it's hopefully the type of question that finds a good answer. That is. A good discovery to make and you make a bit of dolcetto and in fact you make a couple different bottlings and and what distinguishes those and uh, what should we know about dolcetto well dolcetto is um dolcetto is the ugly duckling of piemonte grapes um if you know the story of the ugly duckling well that's exactly how dolcetto is treated most of the times and uh i i'm sorry for getting a bit polemical but um uh, i i 
I'm sad when I hear that Nebbiolo is the king of the region and Barbera is the queen and then Dolcetto is just a soldier. As a matter of fact, this is true. I mean, we will never find the same nobility and the same excitement that we find in an old Barolo in an old Dolcetto. But um, I think that rather Dolcetto is a wrath teenager. This is what the, the soul, the personality of Dolcetto is about. And if you think, if you were a wrath teenager, if you re remember that age or if you know someone who's... Um, what really makes you blossom is some extra love, is an extra hug, is that extra patience that doesn't beat you, but just way too to understand. I think this is Dolcetto. So um, for us, it means that we, we try to farm our Dolcetto in beautiful soils. First of all, it must be white soils. Dolcetto is very finicky. If you plant it on soils with too much iron, or the bottom of the valleys, where sometimes it is confined. Those are obviously the, the places that get a little cooler in uh, in the fall. These two conditions, so the iron or the cold nights, will, will produce cascola, which is a phenomenon which basically means the berries will fall off the stem before ripening. So this urges people to go and pick dolcetto before it's ripe. And it is like um, a never-ending chain where you pick the fruit and ripe because it's planted in the wrong spot and then you wonder how the wine is not so fully pleasing. Uh, so you need white soils, you need good exposures, sun exposures, warm places that don't get too cold. You need good conditions. In a way, I just feel there's no vineyards for Dolcetto and vineyards for Barolo. There's just good vineyards and not so good vineyards. Now we produce two dolcettos, uh, a classic bowling that comes from a safe fruit uh, from the villages of Barolo and Novello, and then a um, selection that is called Cosse Fossati and comes from two specific vineyards, uh, Fossati and Cosse di Vergne. Both are on the western heights of Comune di Barolo. They have different exposures. Fossati is a southeast uh, facing vineyard that lays um, next to Cerequio, just slightly southern than Cerequio. And uh, Costa di Vergne is on the same ridge as Fossati, but on the southwest exposure. Um, Costa Fossati was the desire of my father to produce a dolcetto that could uh, be planted in, in the top vineyard. Uh, his uncle, who was the first guy to help him back in the days, told Alto, if you, if you plant dolcetto here, you'll never make money. And I, I think he was very right. But... Uh, it's uh, like that MasterCard advertisement that there's things in life which are priceless. And I think this is a bit of how we feel about Cosa Fossati. To us, to have Tulcet in those two blocks is priceless. So not only that, but what really made the selection of Cosa Fossati was to go for a, a Selección Massal. Um, the 70s were the years when uh, clones started to be sold. And obviously, this is very not known yet, but nurseries back in the days, the the feature to sell clones was not about higher, uh, better quality, but was about higher yields. This is the this is why you have to be a bit constrained about the first clones, the older clones to be put in the market. They are never the higher quality. So what we tend to go for is either selection myself still today, or when it's not possible, then you want to look for uh, more recently selected clones, which definitely have a focus on quality rather than quantity. Uh, but in any case, Dolcetto was the first grade to be um, where clones were heavily traded and sold because it was the cheaper, the lesser grape, and people just wanted to make more more fruit per hectare. Uh, this really scared my father. He was really scared of uh, losing biodiversity. So I asked permission to his neighbors 
and select over a season time their best vines of Dolcetto, which were already under 30. So we basically make a selection that is virtually as if it was 70 years ago. Um, and um, and uh, in, in the following winter, uh, we're talking of uh, mid-70s, he basically got the cuttings of those wines that he'd been selecting and graft them in Cose Fossati. We call this selection a Picciolo Rosso, red stem, red jack selection, uh, because already now, even if the fruit isn't ripened yet, uh, we're, uh, we're about 10, 15 days behind, uh, before the harvest of Torcettos, but already the jack is, is very purple. Uh, it's really a feature of these vines. And what about Nebbiolo? Uh, you make a few. You have uh, Albe, and there's the Nebbiolo d'Alba, and then there's the Bricca di Viole, which is the uh, historic family property. Tell us a little bit about the differences between those those family. It's a grape whose challenge is bigger than what we will ever understand, I think. So we're not in a rush to to make Barolo, ever. And this is the reason why we... Uh, tend to produce Lanca Nebbiolo with all the young vineyards uh, that will be producing Barolo. There's one exception, which is a block in uh, in uh, Sinio. Sinio is the next door village to Serralunga d'Alba. So basically, the closest crew of Barolo to this vineyard is Falletto. But you cross the street and by just a street, you get off the Barolo area. That's the exception. Aside from that, all the other fruit will be produced, all the other vines will be producing Barolo one day. But we just feel... Um, Teenager vines are like teenager people again, and, and this means great energy, but not always the focus, the wisdom you need and that we want for a Barolo. So we just prefer to make it a uh, Langenebiolo. And um, I'm a bit always scared of the definition of a Barolino, which is very, uh, very easy and just it's a good selling point when you want to introduce Nebbiolo to someone who doesn't know the grape but knows maybe the reputation of the wine and but we can't make a Nebbiolo as if it was a Barolino and it sounds to me in Italian not only as a little Barolo but also a little pretentious Barolo as if it was a 10 year old kid with a jacket and tie I just doesn't look the right the right thing for his age so is not declassified Barolo. It is a vineyard selection, what we need to do. Straight from the moment we harvest the fruit, we know it's going to be Nebbiolo, and we work for that. And the whole sense is that we're looking for more, even more gentleness in the fermentation and, um, and liveliness in the wine. So there's not too much, too much uh, oak aging uh, on the Nebbiolo. It's primarily Seal and some natural oak, just trying to keep all the life we can in the in the bottle uh, and then yes we have um well we have a few different single vineyards for barolo but three of them are blended into barolo albe so we're talking of a barolo di barolo barolo from the village of barolo higher elevation vineyards about 400 meters so this is about this is about um 1200 feet i think we can translate and um these three blocks are Cose Fossati, so the same blocks where we farm Dolcetto, and La Volta, which sits right in the middle and is a full south. We call it Albe, the inspiration. Albe means sunrises in Italian, because if we were up in the vineyard early enough to see the sunrise, we would see three different sunrises as we move from Fossati, the, the higher and the most eastern vineyard, into La Volta, and then into Cosa, which basically means going from a southeast to a full south and then a southwest. And the reason for blending these three blocks is that 
they have the same um, um, the same soil, but the different elevation and the different exposure spins the wine differently. And this is one of the things we love the most about traditional. The tradition of Barolo was the wisdom of blending vineyards, which was really meant to get together the best feature of each vineyard and get a harmony and a drinkability. So this is what Barolo Alba is about. Um, we don't really make recipes when it comes to winemaking, but if we had to draw very simple words, I'd say it is a clean traditional style what we try to to approach for our wines. So long maceration time, about 20, 25 days on the Albe, and then it's followed by aging in large Slavonian casks. And then Brico delle Viole is, sits right in the center of these three vineyards. Uh, if we drew a triangle, uh, and it's right there. Uh, the oldest planting was done in 1949, so that's uh, 64 years old today. It was planted by my father's grandfather, so it's really a family legacy for multiple reasons. Um, and it is a beautiful vineyard. Um, it, it is a full south, uh, again at uh, 400 meters. Uh, it is a vineyard that is historical. Uh, if you look on the, um, there is a there is a book that was um, written by um, a student back in the late 1870s. Um, and sorry, I have I can't recall the name at the moment, but uh, I'll show you when you come. It's it's a handwritten book. Uh, this guy was a student who was given the duty to write an essay on the state of art of viticulture and winemaking. And he basically wrote, listed the existing vineyards of Barolo and Brico was, was among them. Uh, so it was there already at the end of the 1800s. I think it never had a shining place uh, because it's uh, when you think of the classification, the first definition of vineyards back in the 50s and 60s, we're talking of very poor weather vintages. And the vineyard was back then farmed by sharecroppers, so a combination of things that don't really work. It's a it's an engaging vineyard, so you really need to devote attention, and you need to care about uh, quality rather than quantity if you if you want to make it right. But I think the beauty of Brico del Viole is that daytime it is very sunny and warm, um, but nighttime we get the breeze that blows from the mountains. So basically, uh, if you look. We have the same temperature during nighttime in, in the village of Barolo, so 50 meters below and in Brico delle Viole. But then nighttime, we have a, a bigger drop of temperature by about three, four Celsius degrees. This is all led by the breeze. It just pushes the heat away. And uh, this is, to me, is the most exciting feature of Brico delle Viole together, together with the soil, which is a uh, marl. But it's, um, it is a bit richer in clay, but it's a very white, pure clay, very, very peculiar. So... I think um, it is, yes, it is a challenging vineyard, but it is a beautiful one, especially in those years. I don't like talking of global warming, but we certainly experienced some changes in the weather. And I think uh, it just goes in uh, good, good conditions for, for this time. So then we have a few more vineyards. Um, two are Paudana and Ceretta, and these are in Serralunga d'Alba, so straight on the opposite border all the way to the east. They belong to an estate called Luigi Baudana that we uh, took over in 2009. And uh, there are two small but beautiful vineyards. Uh, there is another one in Serralunga that we you're the first to know because it was uh, kept very secret for, for an year and it's called uh, Costa Bella, uh, half an hectare. 
close to Baudana, so west slope of Cerro Longadalpa. What made us fall in love straight from the beginning is that there is an olive tree that produces olives right in the vineyard, and we feel this is very special. Which is rare for the Piemonte, unlike oh. Tuscany, say. Oh, yeah. And, There's uh, not many olive trees in Piemonte, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially especially in a vineyard, especially producing fruit is really, really unusual. Uh, it was kind of a good a good sign for the for, for the exposure of the vineyard. And then finally, Ravera in Novello. So uh, from both Novello and Cosabella, we haven't released uh, a Barolo yet. So how did you become involved with the Badana holdings? Um, because that's an historic holdings in Saralunga. And, and as you mentioned, you're mostly the family holdings were traditionally in the Barolo commune. So yes. how did that come about that uh, you became involved with the Badana holdings, the Charetta and the Badana vineyard? Well, it all started by the initiative of Luigi and Ferina Baudana. They are the um, current generation of the Baudana family. And um, their family has been there for such a long time that the village, the single vineyard Baudana, and obviously the family got the same name. And when I asked Luigi, did your family give name to the place or the other way around? He didn't know. He didn't have an answer. So they've been there forever. Uh, unfortunately, um, no one in their family was taking over. And um, they started to look for ideas on how to bring their story on. And uh, one day in 2008, they call us and ask uh, for a meeting. Basically, a, a common friend has suggested they should talk to us. I, I think my parents built a reputation for respectful people, um, low profile, like soft-spoken people, but very respectful. And this is... And this is what made them chose to talk to us. And we dated for the summer. Basically, we were meeting once a week or every other week. And then I, I say dating because I, I was going home and thinking as if he was a girl. And it was this 65-year-old man who and his vineyard. Does he like me? Does but, he not uh, like me? Do I like him? Yeah. Or, uh, and uh, and uh, so we needed to get into some some more trial. So we offered that I could help them for the harvest and we didn't want to create any rumors. So what I was doing in 2008 was I was working in our cellar until 7 p.m. and then drive my Fiat to Serra Lunga, park it uh, 600 feet away from the cellar door, just run with a hat on, try like in disguise, yeah. recognize and, uh, and breathe carbon dioxide until 11 p.m. And when all works were done, I was going home for late dinner. But it was just very important. It was very funny. It was very important that people didn't see me there because it's uh, we wanted to keep it uh, out of rumors unless something uh, and until something happened. This is really Piemonte, Piemonte life when it comes to vineyards. I we were definitely happy. We saw beautiful vineyards, a beautiful potential, and uh, Luigi and Ferina. I, I think I can say they were also happy, and that's how in '09 we made official we were going to to take over from them but the way we do it is in 99 so uh, 2009 2009 okay yes. okay but because um, you released together 05 and 6 and correct because we we tasted the wines they had and we felt well the winemaking style was a bit different than ours a bit more stronger extraction but there was beautiful quality in in the wines uh, maybe just need a bit more barrel selection. That's what we did. But we felt there was 
there was quality, there was potential, there was beauty in the wines, uh, life. And this is why we decided to bottle those releases. So yes, from 05 on, they were bottled by us. Uh, 09 is the first vintage we've been looking after from pruning to bottling. I see. So the whole way through, as yes. opposed to kind of more the bottling part. And the yeah, and uh, but still, uh, today, uh, Luigi and Ferrina live uh, on the upper floor from the cellar. And what we try to do is to keep them as involved as possible. We, this is why we kept the, the original label, Luigi Baudana, and there is a very tiny essay bottle by G. Vara at the bottom of it. Um, because it's not under the G. Vara label. Like, you look at it, it looks very different than the wines that you bottle under. Like, it, it's a totally different label than Brigade de Viola. It still it, says so, yeah, Baudana on it. And... Um, yeah, maybe it's, it is a bit crazy, but we we thought this was the only possible way to res- really respect their story, and this is also why they chose us, and this is why we we keep Luigi and Frina as involved as possible. They don't obviously have to do manual works anymore, but whenever it comes to choose how to prune and when to pick the fruit, we just call Luigi the night before, and we go in the vineyards together, or we taste from barrels together. And what have you seen as the differences, you know, coming from the perspective of mostly working in Barolo as the commune of Barolo to Saralunga, which is a different commune in the inside the greater Barolo whole? Uh, what, what do you see as the difference in working with those conditions? For us, it's very exciting uh, because because um, first of all, when my father started to to farm vineyards, he's as he was missing a generation to teach him the works, he was looking for masters. So all folks that were kind of retired, but that could retired, uh, retired, retired, yeah, okay, uh, but they could um, um, teach him the wisdom of the farming. And so his pruning master was a guy from Seralunga. And as they were pruning vineyards in the winter, this guy was always speaking high praises of Seralunga wines. And that's when the bug of Seralunga got into my father, and obviously spread in the family later on. So we always had a, a great esteem for the wines of Seralunga. Um, it fits very well in the in the scenery because if you look on the map, it's about the same latitude, which is the latitude we get the most excited about mid of the region, but is on the opposite borders. Um, and the, despite these pretty high elevation vineyards in Seralunga as a village, uh, they the fruit tend to ripe a few days before. Uh, our vineyards, uh, Brico delle Viola and Fossati, so the timing is good. We can we can really put full focus on when to pick the grapes uh, in Baudan and Ceretta before we go and pick the grapes in Barolo. I see. So usually in a normal year, you would pick in Seralunga before you would pick in Barolo. Yes, by uh, two to four days before. And what are the differences between the sites that Badana was associated with, the Badana Vineyard and Ceretta? Well, um, there's obviously a, a geological difference and a geographic dis- difference, and then there's also an historical difference. Uh, obviously, the most important, let's start by the geology. Well, um, Ceretta is a southeast vineyard, and if you think of Seralunga, Seralunga literally means the long hill, the long stretching hill. Uh, so if you face the south, you will have Ceretta on your left, Meaning the southeast slope of the, of the village, while Baudana is on the opposite board, on the opposite slope, so the southwest, facing towards Castiglione Falletto. 
Uh, it's a difference of soil because Ceretta get more calcareous material, a very, very poor topsoil. Um, and then the, um, the, the topsoil is not that deep. I'd say it's about 50, 70 centimeters as an average, while Baudana has uh, more clay, uh, a bit more Arenaria di Diano, which is the yellow sands that uh, compose Castiglione Fallet as well, and it's a bit deeper topsoil. And um, these would be the differences, um, the most important differences. When it comes to the story, it's also a different one. Cerete, I think, right now is one of the up-and-coming vineyards of Barolo. If you think of all the great winemakers that have been purchasing and making wines from Cerreta, while Baudana is, uh, is a hidden secret, in a way. So, because, like, Altari is invested in Cerreta, uh, Giacomo Canterno is invested in Cerreta recently, like in the last exactly. decade or so. Yeah, he's, that's just too bad. He's, like, I'd say, five, six wineries that have been looking for landing Cerreta. Um, but if you look on the atlas of the great vineyards of Barolo and Barbaresco, um, there is a beautiful, there is a beautiful uh, description of Baudana as well. But I think by associating a few hints that I could find, uh, we could try and resume the story of Baudana as a vineyard that was uh, had a name back in the days. Franco Fiorina was. Um, a legendary uh, producer of Barolos in the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, used to blend fruit from Baudana in his in his Barolo. And we're talking of, well, he was a negociant of grapes, but he was a top name back in his in his times. Uh, so Baudana was, had the name. I just have the feeling that maybe people get used to sell easily their grapes to negociant and large wineries. And they basically lost the chance to go for estate bowlings. Right now, there are like three single vineyard Baudanas in the market, and that's it. So it has less name recognition than, say, Rionda, which is another Saralonga uh, vineyard. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, Rionda is, uh, definitely has more more vineyard recognition, or uh, name recognition, and yeah. Or maybe some of the, like, people might know Gabuti more, which is another Saralonga vineyard that also has a, a, a winery named Gabuti, you know, so, but it seems to ring more bells with people. So, yeah, well, I think uh, out of the three single vineyards, Baudana, uh, this one might be the only one that travels a, a bit farther, but is um, primarily wine sold at cellar door to Swiss collectors and German collectors. So, it's really a tiny, tiny production, and this is it. So, where do you envision the future of the Luigi Badana partnership that you've forged? Where, what will change with those wines going forward, and what what has changed? You mentioned you were doing some different things with, uh, you know, in terms of aging and selection. I'm just curious if you could clarify a little bit. Yes, well, um, all changes will will become smooth. Um, I'm fascinated by by the Benedictine times, and by the fact that all all the great things in viticulture took uh, tens, if not hundreds, of years to be accomplished, so we can't be we can't have a schizophrenia for changing things too quickly. And so I feel the first duty we have is to learn more and more about these two crews and how they behave in the different vintages. What is their reaction to different weather conditions, or amount of rain, or water in the ground, or heat and and so on and this this is the first thing but at the same time yes we started to 
add a little bit of our feelings and vision to from day one. And the first thing we did was to go for some uh, less French chalk in the cellar. Uh, this is something that we've been accomplishing gradually. So by every vintage that we bottle, we were pulling out some barrels and not substituting. When we had the chance, we we added a few more large casks. And by large, I mean 17 hectoliters, which is the most uncommon size for a barrel. But we couldn't find, we couldn't fit the, the standard 25 hectoliter. The cellar is, is a garages cellar. So it's so small that 20, 25 hectoliter was just too big. We, we don't have the space there. So it's... Is this uh, 17, uh, 17 hecto um, casks, and uh, but I think that more of more than the tools, um, it, it is a bit of a different approach in the in the maceration. What we're looking for is a balanced extraction, so we're not trying. And this is Vaira, but it has become Baudan as well. It's not about really trying to get all the material from the fruit into the into the juice into the wine. But it's about tiptoeing. Um, we definitely are looking for the noble part of the fruit. We're not looking for just all of the fruit, and and this is what has maybe changed the most. It's it's a bit more gentle extractions. And if you were to taste, say, Badana versus uh, Brigada Viola, what would be the difference in taste in in the palate? I mean, how would you know that one? was from Barolo, how would you recognize the wines that you make? Okay, I'd say, uh, uh, well, um, aromatics, first of all. I, my, my feeling, my, my, yeah, my feeling of Brico del Viol is that it has a more floral driven uh, character, um, higher toned, um, and is and it's kind of very pure, almost rarefied, um, but yeah, very very pure. I'm very focused on some something, and I see that with age, Bricotte de Viola has some features that I, some characters that I see vintage after vintage, and this is a bit of the violet flower, uh, a bit of the orange zest, uh, a bit of the anise that comes with age. Uh, so it's kind of very specific, and and then it has a brighter acidity. Uh, Baudana has a bit of uh, irony, irony character, both in the nose and the mouth. Um, has a hint of leather with a little age that I associate to the Arenari di Diano, which is the soil of Castiglione Falletto, and I think this is this is a bit of a feature of the vineyard. Uh, it has more density, um, overall a, a bit lower acidity. It do, don't feel it as it has a lower acidity, but you feel it's broader on the mid palate. It's not as straight and sharp. It's richer and creamier. Um, and the profile of Baudana to me, it is kind of a bit wilder in the front palate. Uh, I think it's the iron, really, or that's what I taste as an irony character. And then it's very kind of round and silky in the finish. So getting back a little bit to the Vira wines, uh, you mentioned that you make the Riesling, which for a long time went under Langua Bianco and yes. uh, wasn't labeled as Riesling. So I think sometimes people didn't know, but it was always Riesling as far as I know. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that wine? <laughs> yeah, that is um, that is a pirate wine uh, because it was, uh, 
It was the first Riesling planted in Piemonte in 1986. It was the winter between 85 and 86. And uh, as, you, as you know, it's, um, we were always unable to call it Riesling unless you find some of the few bottles of the Riesling made in 91, 92, 93. Those vintages were still labeled Riesling delle Lange Vino da Tavola. Now this was before Lange became a DOC, so we just could eat and uh, could use the name Lange, and it was a table wine, vino da tavola. Um, why planting Riesling? Um, well, the the research of my father in college days was about malolactic fermentation of white grapes. So he had been fermenting all the native uh, white grapes of Piemonte, uh, Arnaise, Favorita, Erbaluce, Cortese for Gavi. Uh, there was uh, some Chardonnay and Sauvignon already planted in the 70s, so he had been fermenting them as well. But the, most he was, the more he was studying about uh, white grapes and malolactic fermentation, the more he was reading about the tradition of mellow fermentation on Riesling. And no one was drinking Riesling in Piemonte. I still remember when I was 15. Uh, so that's just a little more than, well, that's 13 years ago. And, and uh, I remember people misspelling Riesling on the wine list in the region. So he had to travel and uh, look for those bottles. And the more Riesling he was drinking, the more he loved it. The more he was aging, the better these bottles were becoming. It was it was the beginning of a passion. I remember when we were kids, one of the duties in one of the summer holidays was to try and put some order in the family cellar. And we found some almost 2,000 bottles of Riesling, which we were almost embarrassed because we I think we had more Riesling than Barolo, almost aging in the cellar. This is how big the passion. And then in... Uh, in the 80s, my parents were able to purchase Fossati and a piece of the vineyard lays uh, below uh, a wood, a forest, a small forest, is on a southeast exposure. It's pretty high on the hill. And in that specific spot, it is very well drained, as if there was soil from Verduno, more sandy, more drained, that by some earthquake a million years ago was brought in the spot. So they just felt it was not enough uh, clay for Nebbiolo or to the matter for any local red varietal and that's how they thought a white varietal and the first they thought was Riesling. Um, 2011 was the first time we could finally, sorry, 2010, yeah, uh, 11 was the first vintage we could finally label as Lange Riesling. Um, we, we don't think it's really making a difference because this has been a wine that you drink if you know but uh, uh, we were happy that finally the law uh, could let us call the wine for, for what it is. And what is that? I mean, when you taste the Riesling of, of your own uh, state, as opposed to Rieslings from other parts of the world, what, what do you find? Um, well, when we had German visitors back in the early 90s coming to the winery, we were literally hiding each single bottle from the tasting room. We didn't want them to see there was Riesling produced in Barolo because uh, I remember if any of those people would know it was Riesling, they would look at you in such a way you felt guilty for days. And um, and then at some point you, you just had to admit you were making a little Riesling and we quickly said, but hey, it's not a challenge to German Riesling or Austrian Riesling or Alsace. It's it's a flag that from Piemonte says, Viva Riesling, long life to Riesling. It's our passion. As time goes by, I think uh, this, is, this remains always true. Um, and more than that is a Riesling that speaks of Piemonte. We're, it's different. It is dry. 
uh, but definitely has more mid palate. We're southern, so even if it's an east exposure, it's high on the hill. Um, it's covered by shadow because of the trees of the small forest after 1 or 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It's still the wine tells it comes from, from southern. Um, and I think it is, it is a mix. Some, some vintages, the nose is slightly more old session, uh, but then the mid palate might be a bit more easier to associate to maybe a Vakao Riesling bit broader uh, then somehow I feel it has a bit of the acidity touch of a Ranga Riesling of a dry Ranga Riesling uh, but there again we we feel like childs um, because 15 vintages come to find a tradition it's it's just a learning for us every year but we desire this can speak of Piemonte and what about the Pinot Noir uh, that you have well, that's a um, that's a more recent uh, rebellion to the Chamber of Commerce rules, which keep changing every day. But um, basically, in the late nineties, we wanted to plant Dolce, uh, sorry Nebbiolo on top of the Brico Hill, and we're talking a very high elevation. We're talking of four hundred ninety-seven meters, uh, so almost fifteen hundred feet, maybe. Because Brico de Viola is already one of the highest yeah, elevated yeah, vineyards but, in Barolo, so the very top of that would be quite high. Yes, uh, well, Brico de Viole stops at about 420, 430 meters. But then above Brico de Viole, you have a piece of the vineyard which is simply called Brico. And that goes way, way above. Uh, so we're talking of Brico, uh, just above Brico de Viole. And um, sorry for this confusion of names. It's, uh, <laughs> but you know it very well. It's, it's Farolo Hills. So um, we wanted to play Nebbiolo to make Lange Nebbiolo. And we felt, okay, high elevation is going to be more varietal, uh, brighter acidity. This is what we were looking for in the Nebbiolo. And the, the people of the Chamber of Commerce who back then ruled the decision of planting vineyards, uh, if you were allowed, if the soil and, and the conditions were good enough, they told us this, this land is too high to plant Nebbiolo. Now, just for the record, today you can plant a Barolo vineyard up to 520 meters, 530 meters, so above that block. But back in the late 90s, as no one was talking of global warming and rules were slightly different, you were, you were not entitled. And they just dropped in the conversation, well, you should plant Dolcetto. And that got my father furious. Not because it wasn't true we could plant Dolcetto, but because of the way they were treating Dolcetto as a B-plant varietal. Or you can't do this, well, you can plant Dolcetto. And he got so frustrated, he just reacted and said, well, I'd rather plant Pinot Noir. And that's what we did. And then it was the beginning of quite a um, story of uh, challenge and frustration because we did plant Pinot Noir. And then we just realized it was a huge challenge. And uh, so from 2003 to 2000, well, 2002, 2003, up to 2005, we were vinifying the Pinot Noir and then we were selling it bulk because we were disappointed by the result. And I remember my father was starting to be more involved in, in, in the winery, uh, but I was still under 20 years old and um, he was asking me, Giuseppe, what shall we do with this vineyard? And I said, just, uh, that I, I don't know, let's, let's try again. And eventually in 06 we made uh, less than 2,000 bottles of a good Pinot Noir. And by good I, I yeah, it was a good wine, but to us the satisfaction with it was that it was a Pinot that tasted like a Pinot. 
as a, as a Burgundian, people would say, Sapinot. It tastes like a Pinot. It smells of a Pinot. And uh, it was a big relief, that vintage. And uh, this is how we make uh, a very intimate production of maybe one to 2,000 bottles, a little more, some vintages of Pinot Noir. Um, today, we feel very happy to have this varietal. And I think it has re redefined the way we approach to winemaking. Because what we realize is that uh, Nebbiolo is extremely demanding, but somehow it is, maybe because it, the climate of Nebbiolo is a southern, then the climate of Pinot, we're obviously talking of northern climate varietals, but still Nebbiolo is a little more generosity that we feel the Pinot Noir lacks. And, and therefore, um, we felt Pinot was almost as if it was uh, more transparent of what you do as a winemaker on the, to the wine. And we felt that half of a false step left the sign on the wine. So by being forced to be more, even more precise on the winemaking of Pinot Noir, this basically taught us how to, how to transfer what we learned from the Pinot on the other varietals. And uh, so we, we keep this vineyard of Pinot Noir uh, because it's like having a tutor, uh, a teacher that is in the cellar and, and just help us never being satisfied. And let's talk about uh, your conception or take on the last few vintages from the cellar. What is <laughs> your, your thoughts of, say, um, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008? Well, this, this has been the topic of many, many, I'd say, hours by now of conversation with my father. But I think one of the, so you basically working together is continuous conversation, but I, I think we accumulated hours on vintage talking. And one of the most beautiful things he said is that um, if, if anyone of, of us was there in, in the 70s and see the vintages they had in the 70s, we would just feel that the lesser of the vintage of the 2000s is a fantastic, super exceptional vintage. So I think this is the point. The bar has raised a lot, um, has raised a lot. So we're talking as a whole of beautiful vintages, but obviously within them, we, we have our preferences and we, we just need to keep focus enough to detect all the differences. Now, yeah, you were saying from 05 on, but my, my feeling is that we've been having um, a few vintages which are warmer and more approachable, and namely this would be 2011, uh, 2009, 2007. Uh, then we have vintages which are cooler, and the wine stays cooler, and this is 06, 08, uh, 2010, 2012, which I, 2012 is, it was a vintage that really correct my, corrected my way of thinking to weather, because uh, as we were farming during the summer of 2012, I felt, oh, this is very hot, very hot, the temperature is hot, and then the wines have average 1% alcohol less than the previous vintage, so really made me question what? What is the difference? And we just found it was in more rain that we had spread in the season. We didn't really notice there was a huge amount of rain, but it just was enough to keep it cooler as a, as a whole vintage. 
05 is a hard vintage for me to define. Uh, I'd say I, th I, I love pretty much 05 wines. They don't have the raciness of cooler vintages, but I think there is a beautiful shy harmony. Another another quote of my father, but uh, sorry, I would, I, I, it's, to me, is, he is my master. So um, he once said that it is the greatness of Nebbiolo is shown in not in in the unexpected vintages. And I find this is totally true in my own experience because you do expect a great a great Barolo from a great vintage, but then is the non-expected vintages that really deliver you the emotions and the surprises. Um, if I had to, in any case, if, yeah, well, I, I think this is the scenery. So um, I I certainly would say 08 and 10 are vintages to lay down. I'd say that uh, there's a generosity from the 2011, which I think is beautiful to get more people close to Piemonte wines, people who, who don't know Piemonte yet, same as 409. Uh, I just wait for 12. I just think it's too early to, to say too much. And this is it. And let's talk about something that doesn't carry vintage, which is the Kinato. <laughs> Uh, but yes. it w which has gone through some changes that you make under Vara. Uh, Correct. You, tell me a little bit about the history of how you got involved as a winery with uh, Barolo Quinato. Um, life. Uh, basically, what happened is that we had a, a friend and a client in Milan who had been bothering us for years and years about making a Barolo Quinato. And we always, always replied to him, no, because... Um, we just, it was not in the in the DS. And uh, at some point he was so insistent that we started tasting Kinatos uh, seriously. Uh, seriously meaning comparing, uh, tasting series of Kinatos. And obviously you have the chance to go and taste also those which are not on the market. There is a couple of wineries which obviously we, we can't mention because they're doing it under the table kind of thing. But um we were tasting all of them. So, and it was a beautiful time for my family. We were, uh, yeah, we were still in high school. So pretty much everyone was living in the family house. And it was my two siblings and I, all of us. They're, they're called Francesca and Isidoro. Uh, and uh, all, of, all of the three of us were very opinionated about what, we're, what we were tasting. And we had ideas of what we like, what we don't like it. We want... We would like it this way and that way. And by the time we finished to taste all these kinatos, I, I think we had spoke too much and we had to to get to try. So this is how we started making Barolo Kinato. And we were so lucky to find a distillery, which uh, was uh, in Cuneo, so close to the mountains. They still had a couple of old folks we, uh, that, that were going in the summer to get the herbs straight from the mountains. And it was just a beautiful experience. Unfortunately, that distillery is closed. And this is a bit of change, but um, what we were able, were lucky enough, it was to to keep working with the same person because that's really a wisdom that I think is gonna take uh, another decade or so to completely own. So the distiller who worked for the old distillery, you still work with yes, him? Yes, yes. And, um, and it's a fantastic moment because you, you're talking of extremely low dilution of some of the herbs and plants and flowers. And you're, we're talking of tasting sometimes, you know, the extract. So high proof, uh, 
high proof extracts and it's not easy to to guess the direction of of the wine and how it's going to be uh but i think this is this is the beautiful challenge of making kinato i i think the recent bowling the most recent bowling uh, well it is defined by having the little g divider crest on the label which wasn't there previously uh so the bottling is made in a new distillery from yeah, the old exactly, one. Exactly. With the same old distiller but new distillery. I think uh it is a bit more fruit floral uh than before. Um yeah, this this would be would be the main to me the main the main difference. It's a bit more lively. Uh I I really liked the the old one, but I'm just as happy of this one and I think it is adding a extra layer of um, aromatics that we didn't have. So when you make a, a Barolo Quinato, you can't make it in a winery in Italy because that's not legal. You have to do it in a separate distillery uh, yes. facility. And when you decide to make a recipe for a Barolo Quinato, you, I mean, what happens then? I mean, what is the process for determining what becomes? Yeah, well, I even offered to use my my own little cellar uh, to do the distillation and distractions because we want to be so secret that you don't want to show everything, or even to the distillery where you're doing the work. Uh, but um, we were unable yet to this time. Um, well, you you basically have you have a tradition, you have a, a pattern that brings you there, so you know about where you want to start from. We're talking of uh, Kina, uh, Cincona Calisa is that, is that the name. Uh, we're talking of some of the main herbs, the gentiana flowers, and and some of the main ingredients, you pretty much know where you want to start. But then you have to redefine the blend of stews, herbals and roots and barks according to the wine, because we, we don't have to forget this is Barolo wine, so it has to be Barolo DOCG. So it's it's vintage driven, and um, and so that kind of let's let me call it matrix. I'm sorry, it's not the correct term, but the kind of matrix is adapted to to the Barolo that you start from. So the wine itself kind of determines a lot of the other parts of the recipe. We want we want our quinato to be determined by the wine we this was one of the three criterias we wanted to have for for the quinato was it had to taste barolo and it had to come from good barolo uh it had to have uh real herbs so no 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 synthesis aromatics and uh he had to be in balance so a balance of the alcohol the of all the components of the wine um so once you you get to these kind of metrics, then you start working on these small dilution herbals, and uh, that's about uh, another ten, fifteen herbs. And um, as always, uh, they have a combined effect, a synergic effect. So uh, you can't try and do guesses; you have to do trials. So you end up doing these tastings with maybe 10, 10, 15 different bottles, each of them having a different uh, recipe. And uh, and then you you just work on from there. And it took us about two, two months and a half to get the, the plan done. And so originally a lot of the herbs were forged from around Cuneo, which is the area local to where you are. Uh, but where... What what happened with the new recipe? Is that still true? Or um, yes, most 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 come. Uh, it, it's not 
that poetic anymore. It's not uh, the two the two old guys going up in the mountains. So there's a bit more uh, farmed herbs. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty much true. Uh, all what we can get there is we try to get it locally. Yeah, and. I mean, what are the realities of selecting herbs? Are there rules or laws about that? Or yeah, for some herbs, uh, some well, some of the mountain herbs are definitely protected, um, um, but that's pretty much it. Um, producing Barolo Quinat is really as it was when it started. It's really the border between making wine, making a or using distilled brandies and pharmacy, like uh, apothecary work. And it's really right there. And that's how he studied. He studied by a pharmacist uh, for a purpose, for a reason. And what about selecting a wine? When you go about selecting a base wine, which you said a lot of stems from that, uh, how do you go about selecting one wine rather than another for the Brollo Quinato? Because you in particular would have different Brollo to choose from. Um, we're looking for a wine that has both at the same time a balance like a roundness it can be too edgy four square um but at the same time must be very lively because by the end of the process it'll be fortified with brandies it will be added with sugar that we need to steer to balance for the bitterness um so if we start by a wine which is too mature or too forward too open we basically get it tired by the time we go in the bottle so we need a wine that is still uh, like has a good density good meat palate but still has liveliness and um, uh, the lucky with Kinato is that uh, the, 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 the chance with the Kinato is that we can we can just taste the different Barolos and see which one will fit more so uh, we're not strictly connected to a single vineyard or a vineyard choice, but it's more of among the vineyards we can choose from, among the wines we can choose from, which is the one that uh, will fit better in, into the Quinato. We're obviously not talking of Brico delle Viole, but um, uh, but uh, yeah, we have that freedom to, to, choose, to choose the wine. And tell me about the new vineyard that you have now in Saralunga. How, how did that come about? How did you find it? And, and and what what do you plan to do with it? Well, it's a vineyard that we've been on for a bit more than a year. Um, but uh, until very recently, we were unable to to speak of it because some of the farming laws in Italy date back to late 1800s, and they were meant for primarily in central Italy to protect small farmers against the big uh, noble family that owned extreme i mean immense amount of land um so that the law obviously applies all over italy no matter the size no matter the situation so we bought the vineyard but then we had to keep it silent for 12 months uh but it is a tiny vineyard as i said it's about half an hectare um we heard it was uh it was on the market and uh, it was difficult to get it because there was high competition, high pressures on all sides. Um, trading land is never easy and is never fun in a way. Um, I think what, uh, what again, what we could do was to 
to be respectful people. And sometimes it doesn't work because it's about the muscles. We're not about that. And sometimes it does work. It all depends on who you have in front of you. And this uh, person who was selling the land was uh, had very strong connections to it, um, memories, uh, family memories. And uh, at some point she just felt uh, we could be the people to to respect it. And um, it was hard. It was hard. And this, you know, it was like uh, one of the situations where you really don't know what is going to happen. And, uh, but we felt in love when we saw it because, uh, because it was a really special spot. I've been, uh, you know, I've been, it's close to Baudana. And uh, when you, when you go to your own vineyards, you keep observing, you keep observing in, with your eyes, but then with all the senses, you know, you know where the spots which are warmer, the spots which are windier, um, Sometimes you just park the car and leave the car a little farther just for the chance of walking and observing. And, and we just felt it was, it was a beautiful block and, and there was the chance and we tried. And it is, uh, it, it, it is something difficult and beautiful at the same time, but um, this is land in Piemonte. And what what do you anticipate using that vineyard for? I mean, will it go into a different bottling? Will it be bottled by itself? Uh, what what grape variety would be involved? We took it because we felt in love with it. Uh, and obviously, you fall in love and you start dreaming. It's the same for your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and it's the same for a vineyard. Well, not the same, but uh, I think you can understand. It's like... Uh, you meet the person and you start dreaming of your life together and we see the vineyard and then we start dreaming of the wines we could produce. But that's definitely Barolo. Now, what we don't know is the details yet. Um, 2012 was the first time we, we could harvest the grapes. We hadn't been uh, pruning or looking after the farming for the first part of the season. It's only since July we, we, we could look after it. And... Um, and um, it, well, it is something. It is very interesting wine already. Um, it'll be interesting even more in the future, thinking of maybe a bit more canopy coverage on the, on the vines, um, resulting in a bit more. Uh, well, what, right, this vintage we had about fifteen percent alcohol, which is to us it's really high. Uh, the wine can stand it. Uh, but uh, I'm curious to see this season what is going to happen. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about you and, and your dad. Uh, you know, when I talk with other people in Piemonte, they say, you know, Giuseppe uh, is the pride of the family in many ways. You were just recently married. You you had the first grand- grandchild in, in, in the family. You just yes. uh, are recently a father, but you're still a young man. You're not even 30 yet. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, your dad uh, is very smart, but uh, he could be a tough father and uh, that you had to work very hard and that when others would go out after school, you would you would be at home uh, working in the cellar uh, because that's what was expected of you. Uh, you know, it, uh, when I hear you talk, you often quote your dad um, and it seems like he's put a lot of trust in you in terms of representing the wines from a young age. You know, you were here in New York uh 
serving wines yeah, it was, to people. Uh, 17. <laughs> when you were 17, before you could drink legally, you were here in a different country meeting with buyers to, to show the wines. And wh who is your dad? Who are you? And what is the relationship that you have together? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Levy, because, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a very kind of personal thing. Uh, but I'm also, um, I like to get personal. I like to scratch beyond the surface of things. And even if it's a different angle when it comes to myself. Uh, but let, let's start from, let's start from this. Um, who is my father? Who, uh, who am I? But I'd say I would be happy to be, for Lucia, who's my daughter, I would be happy to be a father as my father has been to me, uh, which uh, which doesn't mean being perfect, but it means being transmitting that life is worth and is worth of many things, but life is worth. I think if there's one reason why both my siblings and I have joined the winery, none of us was forced. Our parents made it very clear as they didn't choose what their parents had been wishing for them, uh, they were not imposing to us. And there was one condition for either carrying on in the winery or choosing any other job. We had to be passionate. So this is the only condition we had. But the, all the three of us are working together at the winery. And I think when I wonder, when I ask myself, why, why did we all decide to stay here? Um, having the chance to basically have open-minded parents. And I think it's because we saw there was a beauty I, I don't recall my parents complaining uh, of being tired or complaining when the market situation was difficult or complaining after a health store. And this is particularly significant to me. I, I'm sure I've never heard my father upset, angry or swearing or uh, after a health store. Um, even recently, 2012, we had a couple of hailstorms in summertime, and and I remember we were together. And after what happens when you have a hailstorm, you just repair, you cover yourself. Uh, either it's uh, in the house or it's in the cellar, and from inside or indoor, or just you know the porch, you just look out, you you stare at the hail, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. And uh, and I remember when it finished, I asking him, "Aren't you, aren't you upset?" Because it was so calm and it was like uh, uh, he quoted the Bible basically and he said God has given God has taken and uh, glory to, 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 to the Lord uh, and this way was his way to to really say I think it, what what he said with that quote was more than the quote itself was his approach to life and to winemaking to farming is that we basically do a piece, but we don't control it. We don't own it. And I think these are pieces of the personality of my father. Um, um, yeah, it is true I've been working since I was a kid. Uh, if I have to say, I am most proud of this. Um, I, I was working when I was 10 because uh, whatever, I, when I was seven, eight, I was driving a tractor during harvest time and my father was behind me he was loading the fruit and i was driving it i remember as as a lot of fun but then i said seriously when i was uh, 15 
And uh, that was for disciplinary reasons, for sure, because it was uh, uh, a lazy kid in summer vacation. So I had to go out and help in the vineyards. We, we were planting a vineyard, which is very unusual for summer, uh, but that's what I did. Yeah, I, I can say this. I can say that back in the days, it looked like uh, being tough and being um, and being unpleasant because most of your friends were uh, playing soccer the whole day or just having fun in summertime. I think today I, I just feel so proud and happy because when I enter in the cellar, um, I know, I know, I know how to work. And uh, when I'm in a vineyard, I know what is the work that has to be done. And uh, and um, I know not only how to do the work, but I know how my father does it. And uh, I told you before, I, I think he's my master more than anyone else because they just, um, when you work in the cellar and you're moving houses, there's different ways to moving houses. It's still, it sounds so stupid, so silly, but uh, it's plenty of people who are gross in their actions. And uh, I learned how to treat the tools, even the tools, the most stupid tools of the job, like hoses, uh, with respect. And um, so I feel I feel proud. I Am I been missing anything? I don't think so. Not the important things, not, uh, not the freedom, not the um, adventure, not the chance to dream, dream to other other things. Um, I've been given responsibilities certainly when I was younger. I think this is beautiful. I sometimes I wonder: Will I be so free to let my daughter travel when she's seventeen? Um, and it's a vertigo that takes me because, and she's five months old, so I can only think this is going to uh, get worse as time goes by. But I just feel you you must be so free to let uh, your children go and not keep them under your control, especially in Italy. In Italy, um, it's too many, too plenty of people who are too controlled at too late age. I feel uh, so for all these reasons. I who's who's Aldevera? Well, I think he's is a great guy. I think um, I think he's a great human person. I think when uh, people talk of sustainability in farming, this is this is what we did since the seventies. But there is a human sustainability that not all the farmers have, and that I am proud to say my father has. And hoping he won't be listening to this interview, I can tell I'm very proud of my father, and uh, and I just hope to learn as much as I can with. Um, with myself, I I'm get a bit um, scared when I hear people in the region that say they want to maintain what they have. I don't think maintain maintaining is the right verb. Uh, I don't think keeping things steady is the right things to do. I don't think this will bring any good. Um, but I think it's just a great chance to learn. And yeah, this is it. One of the things I noticed about you, because there are a lot of younger people uh, just uh, maybe at this particular moment in the Piemonte taking over when I say younger I mean 30 or younger uh, taking over their family estate so there is in a way a generational change especially as you see people like uh, Capilano um, yeah. the, the older the older Capilano dying or there's no more Bartolo Mascarello so you see a change one of the things that I noticed about you when I when I spend time with you because we have spent a fair amount of time over the years is that you frequently talk about the older generation, and, and I mean the really older generation, 
uh, yes. in, in either memories that you have or stories that you've heard of them and usually quite reverentially, uh, you know, with a lot of respect and, you know, uh, I, you're the only person in Piemonte that's ever, well, not the only one of two people that's ever talked to me about Franco Fiorina was yeah. a name that's virtually disappeared, but used to be a great name. And you mentioned him earlier. And then uh, Lorenzo Acamasso. Yeah. Uh, and and you have an, a relationship with him. And I wonder, um, because it, it, it's almost, it, it's never going to happen that Acamasso will have this kind of opportunity because he doesn't speak English. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about Acamasso and your relationship with him and, and who he is. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, but first of all, you, you quoted two of the young people that I respect the most and I like the most and this the older is, uh, people no no yeah I know but uh, when you mention Mascarello I think of Maria Teresa uh, or I think of uh, uh, Capellano I think Augusto is a great guy I'm so yeah is I, I like I like I like both Maria Teresa and Augusto I'm I try to stay in front of the very old generation uh, for a few feelings, a few reasons. First of all, um, because whenever I taste an old Barolo, I try to immedesimarmi, uh, to put myself into the mind, into the shoes of the person who made that wine. And, um, and to me, it's a, it's a beautiful exercise. I think of the tools they had, the cellars they had, the the barrels they had, and the um, and the times they had, um, and and tasting those old wines just make me dream. Um, I have a, a personal love for Barolos from the eighties uh, that has been growing in me in the last year and a half year. I I've been trying to look for as many bottles as I could. And yeah, there is a few names that really, whenever I see a bottle, I try to taste. And Franco Firina is one of them. Uh, Acomasso is one of them, even if I maybe have access to more recent vintages as well. Uh, actually, don't really see any old Acomasso really around in, in the market. Um, another name for me is Beppe Cola. At the time, he was doing wines at Pronoto. This was uh, late until the late 80s, maybe 89, 90. Um, and also people that aren't here anymore, uh, the old Pira, E. Pira, um, or Finocchio of uh, Monforte d'Alba, Pienpolvere Soprano, uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s. Uh, some of these histories are also dramatic, uh, but I, 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 I don't know. I just I own them respect, and I try to learn as much as I can. Um, and these people, we have to think of Piemonte. Piemonte is a land for famine. My just to keep quoting my father, he has a he's a he's a quite a famous quote that he once said that uh, in Piemonte we passed from having two cows which was a sign of wealth 50 years ago to having two Mercedes Benz cars which is the sign of wealth today but the mindset hasn't changed and I find it so true in some some conditions so 
Um, but those people, I think, are people that even if maybe they were very humble farmers who started up to the age of eight and then they had to leave school and go work to support the family, they have a sensi sensitiveness. And when it comes to Akumasu, this was evident the first time I met him. I was randomly, uh, we were in a restaurant before Christmas time, and back in those years, he was still the president of the Cantina dei Produttori di Lamora, so basically the local Enoteca, which has a um, representation meaning, and and he was the president. And so he, I totally didn't know this guy with a little uh, mustache and about, can we say this, about three teeth in the in the whole mouth. Uh, in his late 70s, he got up from the table and made a beautiful, one of the most moving speeches I've ever heard. And it was I was so touched, uh, especially, I think there's a set uh, lack of somehow culture, even about ourselves, about our region, about our history. I, I, I think there's beautiful history behind Barolo and it's totally mistreated. And in any case, I this guy had a heart that was speaking in his words. And I... When he stopped talking and he stopped, well, we're, this was 08 or 09, Christmas of 08 or 09, I don't really recall, but it was about when the global turndown of the economics happened. He was encouraging all the producers that belong to his uh, Enoteca to to not give up, to, to be positive. And he was using these words that I'll never forget. Uh, Next year, you'll come back from Vinitaly and Vinitaly is the most important fair for Italian wine. Yeah, not anymore, but back in the days uh, when there was no email connection, people basically received orders uh, for the whole season during Vinitaly on pieces of paper. They were writing contracts with the customers, and, and so he was using this old image, and he said, uh, you'll come back with orders at Vinitaly, and you'll see we'll, we'll go back on track, but with his heart, yeah, like a coach would do with, uh, with his own soccer team, you know? Um, and I, I've been playing soccer enough to be touched by that. And and I just introduced myself to him when he finished talking and, and asked, uh, can I ask what your name? And he, he said, uh, Renzo Comasso in Piemontese. And I obviously I'd been knowing a Comasso by name for for quite a long time. I just never ran into him. And, and so I was very excited. Plus he knew my father very well. So we... That was the first meeting. And then I I basically soon after went and visited him and I've been trying to go at least once a year. And he welcomes you in his in his tasting room, which is nothing but a room of his house. Uh it's a very humble house uh, below La Morra. Um it's he and his sister, none of them got married. Mm never had a person to help him um, and he would sit often on just uh, two chairs inclining his chair and having you know just two legs of the chair and he's bending on the wall and uh, smiling with his three teeth and he talks to you and you can tell he's a he's a very refined psychologist and uh, more than talking he's observing your reaction to what he's saying and so it's like it's funny, it's um, high tension, it's, it's like being tested at the same time. And very careful to what you say, how you feel about the harvest. And you're talking with someone who's had, you know, 40 harvests more than you, and he's still curious to hear your thought about it. And, uh, um, but 
long story short, this is why I like this old fox. Um, here's an example. Everyone is different. Another one that is not known, but he's called Armando Cordero. This guy used to be the winemaker for Franco Fiorina. Um, then he became the president of the tasting panels of Barolo and Barbaresco DOCG. So basically the main guy in the tasting panel that independently has to judge each wine and verify whether it's worth or not the DOCG approval. Um, there was some involvement with Odero, I think. Sorry? I, I think that for a while there was some involvement with Odero. Yeah, very He's possible. Consult. Possible. Yeah, yeah. He, he was doing consulting as well at some point. And, you know, it's... Um, it's plenty of these stories. Um, just another one that I'm particularly in love with is, uh, well, well, you know, when my father was studying, uh, one day he got a prize from Veronelli, who was the first, uh, the first uh, journalist, wine critic in Italy. Well, it was not the very first. Mario Soldati had been writing uh, Vino al Vino before that, but um, Veronelli was a personality. He was a high cultural profile. Uh, anarchist, politically speaking, and writing speaking, um, and uh, and well, basically, he was writing this catalogo Balafia, and, and my father was awarded a prize, and he receives a phone call, and that's Aldo Conterno, who was already legendary in the late seventies, early eighties, asking, uh, um, "I I I heard you won the prize as well. Are you going to Torino tomorrow for?" for the ceremony and my father was replying yes i am so what if we do the trip together i'll come and pick you up and the following morning there's this lancia uh, azure color that drives into into the old farm and where we, we were at the time and because the lancia is a car sorry it's a yeah, yeah, sorry sorry, sorry I didn't mention. yeah lancia yeah. was was the fancier fiat and before it was a, a beautiful brand and um and it was Aldo Conterno, uh, Bartolo Mascarello, and Quinto Chianetti. So three legendary people. Unfortunately, two of them are those who I was too young um, to really get to know. And Quinto Chianetti is a fantastic producer still today. Uh, 2010, Dolcetto from Chianetti. I think there is, there is a poetry in that wine. Uh, a great producer of Dolcetto di Dogliani. And they were already celebrities as... It could be in the 80s before really Barolo was so much in the chart, but they were coming to pick the young guy up to know who he is and what he's about. Um, this is beautiful to me. I'm, and if I may say one more thing about generation change. Um, I, I, I think there is... This is kind of becoming a big topic. I've, if you think of some recent articles and, and you know, even in the press that anticipate of these, um, but um, no doubt that things have changed, and I think we would be childish if we tried to keep things as they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. That's to me, that's not the point, and I and I think is unfair to people who just make a whole big prejudice of it but it is um it is a challenge i think i think uh, this is what makes me so eager to learn as much as i can from the old folks because we're not living the same life uh, period there's no doubt about this but um then it's about 
sensibility and it's about respect. And this is what I would like to nourish as much as I can. And same for my siblings. I haven't mentioned them, but it's uh, it's a very close connection. And we just feel very happy to work together and we feel the same about, about this. Giuseppe Vara, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Giuseppe Vara of the Vara Winery in Barolo. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.